1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm joined by Evan Berry, editor of Climate Politics and the Power of Religion, published by Indiana University Press. He is an associate professor of environmental humanities at Arizona State University and president of the International Society for the Study of Religion, Nature, and Culture. Evan Berry, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So to start, um, could you tell us why you decided to edit this volume of essays on climate politics and the power of religion? And um, could you define those key terms, climate politics and religion?
1: Sure. So this edited volume is actually one of two books that was the end result of a multi-year research grant by the Henry Luce Foundation, on uh, it was the grant was called Religion and Climate Change in Cross Regional Perspective, uh, and it was administered by the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. So we had been working on that project for for several years and cultivated about twenty to twenty five uh, scholars to uh, and and research projects, and we we're looking for exactly how to gather them. So this. This volume focused on engagements of religious actors and ideas with the policy and political struggles around climate change. The other focused more directly on lived experiences of people in communities affected by climate change and the role of religion in in shaping and uh, uh, it's an intersection with their experiences of climate impacts so uh the key terms that i think are important um we we use in the title climate politics and authors in the volume speak variously about climate catastrophe climate change and climate crisis of course those words all have different emphases but broadly we're thinking about the role of uh, human economic activity in producing greenhouse gases and the the changing geo-atmospheric systems and the ways that those changes are harmful and deleterious both to human life and to to ecosystems and, and other than human life. Those impacts are, of course, predominantly caused by wealthy societies in the global north, and the impacts of those changes are felt predominantly um, by uh, poor uh, nations and uh, more uh, vulnerable people in the global south, and so there's all sorts of problematic and challenging questions for researchers in this field about how we think about responsibility, how we think about uh, causality, how we think about uh, human solidarity. Uh, how we think about cultural and social differences. Uh, And so the volume targets those questions in particular as we think about climate change as, of course, a global problem, but as a problem that's understood and received and debated in very different terms in different parts of the world and thinking specifically about how religion uh, plays a role in in shaping the distinct nature that those uh, different sets of debates have.
0: Okay. Um, so you write, quote, the climate crisis is a spiritual crisis. Um, so you're a religious studies scholar. I would also describe you as, as a scholar with many other backgrounds, but um, I know you as a religious studies scholar. Um, so why do you believe this to be true, that the climate crisis is a spiritual crisis? I think
1: one of the things I like about that phrase or about thinking about climate change as a religious or spiritual crisis is, is that there are multiple layers of meaning to that. So on the one hand, I think the climate crisis poses challenges to the kinds of traditions that have traditionally been thought of as religions, that thinking about Nature and the environment, and as part of a, a system in which humans are participants but are not fully in control, uh, destabilizes m- the, many of the theologies that have been dominant uh, over the last several millennia, right? There are sort of some assumptions about what human beings are and how they relate to their environments that are relatively typical across Holocene traditions and the Anthropocene brings those, uh, traditions into crisis. There are, uh, other ways that climate change is a spiritual crisis and that it asks us questions about where we are, where are, where we're headed as a society, uh, what our futures will look like. It has an eschatological quality to it that remains unanswered and spirituality and religion are an important part of how people both individuals and groups navigate those unknown and indeterminate futures.
0: So the the title of this volume is uh, Climate Politics and the Power of Religion, um, I, I can imagine some listeners uh, wondering, like, what do climate politics and religion have to do, e- do with each other? Um, I would also imagine you've had to answer this question both for yourself and for others. Um, so so how do you answer that question? How do you explain the various connections?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I get this question a lot in, in my work in general. I've gotten it in many different ways and shapes over the years. Uh, I think... Climate politics is a discrete sub-area of environmental politics. An important part of it is is about the way that multilateral institutions are grappling with the climate crisis and the role of national governments in contributing to those international streams. Religion plays really important roles, both in terms of shaping how individual nations participate in international negotiations around climate change. So for instance, you can't really understand how the United States comes to the particular kinds of positions that it does in the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change without understanding how our politics in the United States are fragmented, uh, in many different ways, but especially around religion, religious difference, religiously inflected ideologies. The same is true in other nations. uh, I would name as a key example uh, in India, where uh, the BJP is a distinctly and specifically religious uh, actor, uh, and that shapes how that party responds to climate change on the international, uh, international scale. There's also a really interesting set of debates around uh, how climate change is understood and responded to inside of nations. So the politics uh, uh, at the national level are also sort of curiously and distinctly shaped by religion in lots of different parts of the world. Uh, We might look at a a country like Trinidad, where uh, fossil fuels are a really important part of the nation's economy, Uh, petroleum production, uh, and uh, national level politics are like the United States, um, structured around a set of um, religious differences and, and, and that intersect with other kinds of difference, but you can't sort of take apart and fully separate how environmental politics works from the way that uh, religion influences politics more broadly. So the the book is a series of case studies uh, that dive into those, the different ways those those things cling together across different nations.
0: So, to sort of drill down into I guess the religious and spiritual side of this book um so how have the impacts um and sort of the ongoing threat of climate change already created or will create new material conditions new new political realities um for religious communities religious peoples religious actors um and how is climate change already shaping the lived experience of religious peoples? Um, you've obviously started to allude to it, but maybe we can flesh it out a little more.
1: Yeah. I, I, in order to answer that question, I'd, I'd like to back up just a bit to say something about how the research project generated this and a, a second uh, edited volume called Understanding Climate Change Through Religious Life Worlds. That was edited by David Haberman and is also uh, University of Indiana Press. Uh, The project envisioned that there are three distinct ways of articulating and researching the religion-climate interface, that one of them has to do with how religious actors, understood in a relatively conventional and uh, traditional sense, act in relationship to climate issues and how they engage in climate uh, discourses. The the definitive example of that is, of course, uh, the papal encyclical Laudato Si, which the Catholic Church uh, deployed strategically as a way to you know, engage international politics on, on climate change. A second way to think about the religion-climate change interface is to look at how religious discourses and ideas are embedded in the way Different cultures think and talk about the environment. So, uh, how words like nature or creation or stewardship may or may not be salient in different kinds of contexts. Religion is sort of always in the background of how human communities uh, think about uh, nature and the environment, or at least the tools of scholars uh, of religion are uh, uniquely significant for uncovering and thinking about how those. cultural articulations of nature work. Uh, The third way uh, that we explored in in the volume is more in line with what you're asking about, which is about uh, how climate change is changing the conditions for religion. So I think there are a whole bunch of different ways to answer that question. And one of the things I enjoy about the volume is that our authors took that in really different directions. So uh, I would give you one example from my own chapter, which is about... um, the concept of political opportunity, Uh, you can see that climate change uh, presents uh, a a set of questions for religious actors, both on the global stage and nationally in the United States to get their message out there and sort of gives them a way to brand what they're doing and and to have to respond. So it's not just that they have the option of responding, but that it's become such a major part of how any kind of institutional or organization uh, develops its public engagement, that it conditions groups to go down different kinds of pathways. So organizations and communities are sort of forced to decide whether this is an important issue to them or an unimportant issue, whether they want to uh, deny that climate change is uh, scientifically verifiable uh, or to deny that science is an important part of getting information about how the world works and and what we should do in in response uh, to what's happening around us or they have to embrace the science and they have to think about what the relationship is in a very specific way is between their own teachings and uh, scientific knowledge. So uh, in the case of the Catholic Church, again, uh, it's not irrelevant that in the decade or so leading up to uh, Pope Francis's encyclical, uh, the Catholic Church had been in perennial crisis about uh, things like sexual abuse uh corruption in the Vatican Bank um, declining uh participation and, and and affiliation with the church, and so uh, something like climate change, which had not been absent from church teaching before that, was lifted to a higher level of emphasis as a way uh, for the elite of the institution to speak out about connecting to youth, about uh, reasserting the, the the Vatican's powerful position in international politics. Uh, so there's all sorts of ways that it, it climate change sets conditions through which religious actors have to rethink where their place is in in the modern world. There's also, um, I think, a more granular way to talk about uh, how climate change changes or affects religion. And that's to look at the local places where religion is lived and practiced and experienced. A number of cases, both in this volume and its companion, uh, point to pilgrimage sites or local places that are undergoing rapid ecological change uh, or uh, degradation. And local people have to respond to that when, Young people have to move away because the agricultural jobs that have been a community sta- staple for, for generations are no longer sustainable, and they have to move to cities or to other countries to, to, to make their livelihoods. Uh, there aren't young people to learn traditions and rituals. When uh, a glacier is the object of veneration or the site of pilgrimage, as it is in a number of places in both the Andes and Himalayas, Uh, when those glaciers retreat or melt or are unstable to the point that it's not safe for humans to walk on them, uh, those traditions, those pilgrimage sites change. And so how communities adapt to that uh, is important as an object uh, of study and knowledge and of contemplation about what's being lost through the climate crisis. I think a lot of times the way we think about Sea level rise and, and ocean acidification is is very rational and utilitarian. You know, fishing stocks will be depleted. Uh, cities will have to pay more money to to have infrastructure that allows them to adapt uh, to to rising sea levels. And that those ways of thinking about and talking about climate change, especially in in the media, um, fail to capture something about the the lived experience and, and the cultural violence that's being done through, uh, through atmospheric anthropogenic climate change.
0: Uh, thank you for that. Um, I would also recommend to our listeners that they um, listen to earlier interviews I've done uh, with Todd Lavassier um, on his book, Climate Change, Religion, and Our Bodily Future, um, and Robin uh, Globus veldman and her book uh, "The Gospel of Climate Skepticism," uh, because I think Evan, you have helpfully pointed out um, that religions are not uniformly uh, going "quote green" or um, or the reverse. Um, they are not, you know, skeptical of the sci- of the science. Um, again, uniformly, right? There's there's a lot of different responses from various traditions, and even within a tradition, um, you know, there isn't necessarily uniformity.
1: Absolutely. Those are both great books.
0: Agreed. Agreed. Um, so, again, d- drilling down into the connection between religious engagement and sort of maybe environmental politics more broadly. Um, so, so where, how, and under what conditions um, is religious engagement with environmental politics possible um I, I think we can assume that it's possible you know in any setting at any time, uh, but i I think your book suggests otherwise
1: yeah i I take that to be sort of the primary question that's that's posed across all of the chapters in the books. Uh, there is, as you say, an assumption that religious engagement is always possible, and I think that that assumption is is attached to a set of um, propositions about what counts as religious. So religious groups and actors are a certain kind of social or cultural entity that have beliefs about the world, and they can bring those beliefs to bear on any different issue, and that those beliefs um, can be articulated and are relatively stable. And that's not exactly how religious engagement in politics around any issue works and i think uh one important part of this is to, is that because climate change is such a broad international uh universal issue that it allows us an opportunity for those of us who are interested sort of generally in how religion is engaged in public sphere issues to think comparatively about where religion does show up and when where it doesn't and why and why not so I'll point to a particular uh, chapter that I, I really like on this point that's David Buckley's chapter about the Philippines I think um offhand it's it's chapter two um and he is writing about the role of the uh, the Philippine Bishops Association, which is relatively powerful and influential in uh, politics in the Philippines. And, uh, you know, these are the, so it's, it's it's documenting how the Bishops Association was engaged on this issue, especially in the early years of the Duterte uh, administration, uh, which was also in the years immediately after the publication of La Dato Si. So, uh, important and powerful Catholic institutions had a, a sort of heightened incentive to engage around climate change. The Philippine Bishops Association has a long history of speaking out and acting on environmental issues generally and climate change in particular. Um, sort of strangely, uh, given his uh, stance on other kinds of issue, um, Duterte, President Duterte uh was interested in in sort of increasing the ambition of uh, climate policy in the Philippines. And so you'd think this would be a natural space for uh, for cooperation or for, for the ability of a, uh, a religious actor to sort of contribute to a better, stronger climate policy at the national scale. And yet that didn't happen. And so um, Uh, Dr. Buckley in that chapter sort of asking why that is. And I think the, the insight that he provides that then we see sort of support for across other chapters is that climate change is never in a vacuum. It's always part of a broader matrix of political considerations. And that disagreements about, um, in the case of the Philippines, uh, the human rights uh, abuses connected to extrajudicial killing uh, by the police of uh, purported uh, criminals uh, and debates and controversies around mining, uh, another major environmental issue in the Philippines, that those disagreements uh, ended up sort of taking precedent over climate change and pushing it to the back burner, or at least because there were such Hot button issues that were sites of disagreement that it uh, undercut the ability to build some consensus around uh, climate change, and that specifically the minister that duterte appointed around mining, who would have been an important ally, ran afoul of of duterte's uh, connections in the corporate mining world, and that and that minister eventually was removed from the post. And that removal uh, disrupted the broader conversation between the administration and the Catholic Bishops Association. So, there's just the thing that I'm trying to illustrate in recounting this particular case is that uh, there are really interesting and important and noteworthy connections between climate change and other kinds of issues that we might not think about if our assumption about how. Religious engagement in politics works is that it's purely ideological. That religious actors just speak up their mind about their faith convictions, and that somehow magically has an influence on policy. But when you get down to it, uh, religious stakeholders or uh, faith groups of any kind are just like other kinds of political actors. Which is that they have to pick and choose their battles. That they. find moments where they can be influential and that the those moments are conditional on all sorts of other things like the media cycle like scandals like conventions like the exact composition of uh, a legislative chamber so those those really more fine grain details matter a lot more and that it would I think behoove scholars of religion to pay attention to that kind of stuff as opposed to just thinking that the um, reified ethical systems that are uh not articulated through politics and policy uh, of a religion uh, are are the only thing that matters that in fact religions are political actors
0: yeah this this feels like an important time to remind us of the power of the idea of lived religion right that there's there's you know the the sacred texts there's Perhaps what is is taught on whatever day folks you know gather to celebrate, uh, whether it's the Sabbath or you know another day, um, and then there's how do you actually live your faith? How do you actually live as a human being in this world? And that complicates um, religious engagement, but also religious and political engagement <laughs> um, in a very human way, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is a bit off topic, but I think a similar conversation could be had about how uh, debates about reproductive rights and contraception play out in US politics and policy in relationship to the Catholic Church, where the elites in the church uh, sort of have a particular kind of theological structure that compels them to think and act in certain kinds of ways, and that the laity in the church, um, just public opinion polling of the laity and the lived religious experience of of American Catholics is all over the map and spans the full political spectrum of how people come down on those kinds of, of questions. And so that depending on what it is you're trying to think about, mapping how Catholicism is related to the politics of uh, reproductive health in the United States uh, is much more complicated than simply articulating where the Vatican uh, falls on that kind of an issue. And I think exactly that kind of subtlety, which most people wouldn't struggle to understand in relationship to something like reproductive rights in the United States, um, that kind of oversimplification still seems to govern often the way people think or talk about where uh, religious actors show up in the overall landscape of uh, environmental and, and climate issues.
0: Absolutely. Um, I I come from an Irish Catholic family. And uh, (laughs) long before uh, the Vatican and the Pope signed off on birth control, uh, you know, my family started using it after many generations of 11 or 10 children and, you know, challenges and keeping all of those children alive and healthy and fed et etc. So. Yes, there's definitely a difference between the lived religion, <laughs> and you know what what the uh, the pope says from one day to the next, or even what the priest of your you know of your um, congregation says. So, absolutely. Um, so, so you mentioned uh, the Philippines, and I, I wanted to um, sort of bring up a, a very political idea, but also sort of this variation idea that you you reference um, in your introduction. Um, so. So you referenced the resurgence of populist nationalisms, but also sort of a renewed enthusiasm uh, for the, quote, um, unquote, green left in Europe and the Americas. Um, so obviously there there's different responses, different political responses to climate change and... Um, and, I, and I'm wondering, what role do you think sort of climate change, however it is understood in these different contexts, like what what role is it playing in sort of the formation of sort of new political alliances or new political sort of belief systems?
1: Yeah. Well, I th- so let me make sure I understand your question clearly. Are you asking about those kinds of new political possibilities and their relationship to religion?
0: So, so there's both the new political possibilities. And I suppose I, I should um, look closely again at your language. Uh, you also say a renewed sort of enthusiasm for the, the green left, at least in the in Europe and the Americas. Um, so, so just wondering, like, what role climate change is playing in either these resurgences or perhaps in new political uh, formations, and whether that is directly connected to religion or not, um, sort of the, the political side of this, um, if it is separated, seems, seems significant, because I, I don't think that sort of the politics of climate change um, is sort of... Yeah, I don't think it like naturally maps on to sort of liberal politics in all settings, right? Like there's certainly settings in which um, sort of green politics um, has led to the rise of like the eugenics movement, for example. So um, it seems like you were you were starting to get into it in this introductory chapter, how sort of there's some unexpected directions that climate change is taking different sort of political traditions, whether, you know, pre-existing traditions or perhaps new formations.
1: Yeah. So the research project that preceded the one that is the basis of the volume we're discussing was more specifically focused on Latin America. And from that, along with my colleague, Rob Albro, uh, we edited a volume uh, called Church and Cosmovision. And sort of the takeaway from that volume is that in many different national contexts in uh, South America, in particular, Latin America more generally, uh, there are sort of unexpected and, and intriguing new alliances between uh, Christian groups, m- predominantly Catholic groups, and indigenous communities, and that those uh, alliances are built on the political terrain of, around the environment and sustainability. And those wouldn't necessarily have been. Uh, alliances that would have made good sense under the the uh, or during the sort of authoritarian era of the 1960s 70s and 80s where debates were more focused on economic development and uh, um, political infrastructures so the environment one thing it does is uh, creates new challenges that put together actors in the world of religion that we wouldn't necessarily expect. So I've written separately about this in other places as well. Uh, Generally, uh, women's groups and uh, uh, organizations from uh, the global South that were focused on sustainable development and the Vatican have not didn't used to be tightly allied because of the Vatican's stance on reproductive health, on the rights of women, on, uh, education for girls, that it was not sort of where they want, where where those kinds of organizations wanted it to be. But in the post, uh, climate change or in the in the era of climate change, those kinds of alliances are undergoing a major transformation. So there's sort of a strange bedfellows uh, quality to all of this. But I also think there's other interesting kinds of dynamics around climate politics where attention to religion helps us see things more clearly. So one, we might notice the way in which uh, rights of nature movements which largely developed out of indigenous claims and indigenous social movements uh, that were articulated in um, green tribunals and constitutional amendments in places as different as New Zealand and India and uh, Bolivia. Uh, Those kinds of movements uh, are now taking on a secular character as they Uh, get sorted out through the courts and get taken up by um, green organizations of various kinds to to try to champion uh, environmental protection in different national contexts, even while those laws themselves have a um, sort of cultural history uh, that can't be called totally secular. Another way we can think about all of this is that uh, the rise of the green left in both Europe and the Americas also can't be disentangled from com- broader conversations about secularization. It's really difficult to think about parliamentary politics uh, without sort of connecting the bifurcation of nationalist uh, right wing parties that often have some sort of connection to uh, ethno religious nationalism and the kinds of alternatives that are being imagined um, that are often not just on an economic left, but a sort of social left that incorporates uh, both uh, ecological considerations and uh, broader ideals about m- multicultural inclusion. So that that marriage of uh, sort of a pluralistic multiculturalism that sees itself as secular uh, and also posits a sort of optimistic view of what is possible as it's, it's, those groups are in, in tension with the, the rising tide of populist nationalism that we see uh, sprouting up in Europe, in the United States, in the Philippines, in India, in Brazil, uh, all over the world.
0: Yeah, all over the world. <laughs> I, I think that that is something I've learned over the last five years. You know, it's, it's very easy to sort of narrow your scope and think about your particular context or your national context. And yeah, uh, these movements are definitely, um, yeah, finding shape all over the world in lots of different ways. But uh, yeah, there's, there are definitely discrete connections that we should pay attention to.
1: And I think people who are interested in religion generally and religion in the environment specifically have a contribution to make there because many of the populist nationalist movements around the world are both uh, sort of rev- have a revisionist traditionalism around religion. They imagine uh, some sort of homogeneous ethnic belonging in which gender norms are uh, reified in a way that they probably never actually ever were uh, and they are off those movements are often quite skeptical about climate change and other kinds of issues that uh, the best available science would want us to to think progressively about so if you see that connection between Uh, the denial that anthropogenic uh, impacts are negatively affecting the climate and debates about gender and sexuality. Uh, and you can see that deb- that connection more clearly if you're thinking about those movements, not only from the perspective uh, of religion, but of religion and the environment, and if you're doing it comparatively. So I think even though that's not a major focus of this volume, um, those of us responsible for, for bringing it about um, are, are trying to build a foundation of knowledge that emphasizes uh, this the importance of, of seeing that matrix of, of connections uh, for making knowledge about religion valuable for social progress.
0: So building off of this this sort of secularization idea, um, you note that there is in your view a secular bias within the scholarly literature on uh, environmental politics. Um, so I'm wondering why why you think that is, what accounts for this bias, um, and, and how does this secular bias, um, if we can see that there is one, uh, shape environmental po- uh, politics and policy action?
1: Yeah. I mean, one way of thinking about this is that there is a secular bias in political science generally, that the sort of emphasis on real politic and the emphasis on identifying powerful actors and, and following the money those are all really important factors in thinking about how politics works in the United States and beyond uh, but those are not th- those kinds of analyses often, Discount or undervalue questions of identity, questions of belonging, questions of ideology that scholars of religion would want to attend to more carefully. And wetting those things, I think, can be really powerful. So I'm not arguing that um, sort of quantitative measures of political influence are irrelevant, uh, but that uh, being able to think in your analysis of how the debates on on any kind of political issue, climate change included. Play out need to be able to to attend to these f- very difficult to articulate features like um, how people's social identity and location informs where they give money to. I mean, how would you ever understand something like the National Rifle Association or uh, belonging in Greenpeace without seeing without being able to articulate? a person's uh location in ways that are connected to religion and spirituality so i think the there's there remains a, a, a great need to do that kind of work um yeah I'll, i would i guess i would leave it at that
0: Yeah, I I would note that um, I am I see myself as an environmental studies scholar, but I am currently working within a religion and a history department, and that's partially because in sort of the environmental departments, I I would have naturally sort of uh, sought out um, that there was this sort of scientific element that didn't necessarily allow for conversations about say religion as sort of a societal factor that was of great import to, you know, climate change or environmental politics. Um, so the, that, that dynamic, I think at least in the United States and the way that sort of environmental studies programs, for example, were shaped and developed, um, that might have something to do with this, at least in this smaller academic world.
1: Yeah. Uh, in, in environmental history, generally, uh, and maybe environmental studies more broadly, there are there's kind of a strong materialist bias that economic conditions, uh, that people's livelihoods, that ecological change, that those are critical driving forces in in social and and political spheres and that's true. And those things are always already connected to religious and spiritual dimensions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think maybe our our issue is that we, in an attempt to say something new about a specific thing, we sort of disaggregate um, these overlapping issues. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because there are, there are so many connections, obviously, as we've been highlighting throughout this interview and as you have highlighted through this volume. Um, so so, what do you think the major contributions of this volume are? Um, you obviously highlight the conclusions, but uh, conclusions and contributions, they, they sometimes map onto each other, but not always. So maybe the major contributions and also the conclusions, maybe speak about them separately.
1: Sure. So for contributions, I think that this volume helps open up new possibilities for research about how uh, religion is, is relevant in environmental contestations. And I would say more specifically that it helps better position emerging scholars who wish to do research of this kind to think about how religion is attenuated in particular cases around environmental issues. I think in the study of religion for a long time there has been a pressure. Uh, maybe this comes from uh, older models of thinking about world religions uh, that we need to be able to to think broadly about how a, a particular religion uh, matters or, or what the what the standing of a particular religion is vis a vis a particular issue. So. Where are American Protestants on environmental issues? And that scale just doesn't quite get it right. Um, So, by putting, by doing the work of getting into the weeds a little bit about how religion comes to matter in particular places around uh, the same issue um, and how that looks different because of the contexts where it comes to matter, I think we're providing uh, tools. And uh, examples about how to 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 get into the weeds to better understand that. And I think one one reason that's important is is it, that it's not just knowledge. That as I was saying earlier, that by getting down into the fine grain details about how people at local and national levels are thinking about climate change, responding to climate change, being impacted by climate change, being forced to rely on uh, their cultural traditions or being compelled to transform those traditions to respond to the kinds of challenges they're facing. By getting down into those details, I I think we do a much better job of humanizing the climate crisis. I so often see reporting in the mass media about climate change uh, that even if it is about how a person's home was lost to a wildfire. Um, it, it, those are sort of universal qualities, right? Every people in an ideal world have homes. And when those homes are lost, it's sad, but there's no particularity to that. I think it's really important to be able to tell stories, to move people on their, on climate change and to try to, uh, get more action and to, 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 reduce emissions that we better understand that climate change is in people's lives it's affecting people's lives and their cultures and not just their economic well-being that we need to be able to think of it as more than just a dollars and cents issue where insurance for homes is you know needs to be changed or something that it that it's actually affecting what they believe and how they think about their children's futures and where they think that the fate of humanity lies and that getting at those kinds of issues uh, is, is critical for transformation. So I, I would say that's, um, I, I guess, the, the core cluster of contributions. Um, for, for takeaways, uh, I think we also have, uh, across the two volumes that are from this project, uh, I think we're making some interesting observations about the way that religion or the the climate crisis is driving religious change. One of the themes that kept coming up, and this is probably a larger part of the other volume, but some of the cases in the volume we're discussing do the same thing, which is to talk about how people's core, certain core ideas in Religious life are changing that uh, in for instance, uh, my colleague David Haberman's chapter in the other volume, he focuses on how people's theologies about mother Ganga, the goddess of the river Ganges, are changing that where she was once a nurturing maternal god, uh, there are larger and larger swaths of people. Uh, who would say that she has become angry or enraged or is acting vengefully towards humanity. So there are major transformations underway. And I think uh, that as a takeaway, being able to think about how uh, religions are not stable objects that act on the, the world of politics and the environment, but rather that there's a dynamic exchange between these different spheres uh, and to be able to track that in ways that attend to the specific places where scholars do work. And um, I think that's an important next step for the field more broadly.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's an important point that religions are are not static from sort of era to era, or again, even within a particular tradition at that same point in time. Um, I, I, it seems like such an obvious point. And yet I, I find that some people just assume that beliefs are, are constant, you know, from one era to the next. And
1: that's just, that's just not so. It is the thing that we uh, have to emphasize in every 100 level religious studies course we teach. And uh, apparently also, uh, a, a kind of conversation that I think we could do better at having in the study of religion when we're trying to engage uh, our peers in other disciplines that are also interested around the cultural dimensions of climate change.
0: Okay. So, so I have a, a two final questions. Um, they are related to the content of this volume, but uh, could be considered a little bit tangential. But I, I think they are important to ask since I have uh, such an expert on on the line with me. Um, so, so, Evan, um, I am sure you are aware that there are mainstream political actors and journalists as well as academic scholars um, currently arguing that so-called believers in climate change have constructed a new climate change based religion or at least a social phenomenon that resembles a religion. Um, so, so how do you think about this notion? Like, is there any validity to that claim? Um, even though you know, sometimes it comes across as sort of a diminishing claim of those people.
1: Yeah. I, so, what's fascinating about this question, and it's 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 a question that I've have a few friends that I've, I've talked about this with for a very long time. There is the same observation can be made by scholars of religion and by critics of environmentalism about the religious qualities of environmental concern. So uh, you, you could have someone on the one hand, like Braun Taylor, uh, there at the University of Florida, uh, who has astutely observed the religious qualities of environmentalism, uh, has thought about how those have played out in uh, social movements in the United States for, for many decades, and how we can use the tools of religious studies to better understand environmental social movements. That is uh, excellent and important scholarship, and I have no objection to noting... To, I actually think we, we can m- much more adequately understand uh, what drives people to religion uh, to in, in environmental action uh, how social movements take shape um, by attending to these religion resembling qualities but at the same time it's ironic and troubling that the maybe the group that has uh, most successfully latched on to or uh, independently come up with the same idea are a particular kind of anti environmental conservative who wish to use that religion resembling argument to uh, to try to paint environmentalism as a heresy against some other form of religiosity to use it to invalidate it so I think there's sort of two independent claims there that are that are working together that maybe we need to separate out so the one is does environmentalism broadly have religion resembling characteristics? I think the answer is unambiguously yes. And the question then becomes, what do you do with that resemblance? Um, Does that invalidate it or make it um, somehow... uh, Socially problematic. And this is, of course, the classic distinction between religious studies and theology. Scholars of religion are, are trying to understand certain kinds of phenomena and traditions in the world and to bring them into clearer analytic focus, uh, as opposed to trying to say particular kinds of religion are the ones you should or should not have. Uh, so I'm, I'm reminded uh, specifically of, it's, it's Michael Creighton, you know, the, the of Jurassic Park frame, who in 2003 at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco uh, gave a talk called Environmentalism as a Religion. And the whole idea is that it is a form of false prophecy and like secular manipulation of our youth that we should think of as very dangerous and that that's a direction where i wouldn't want to take this despite the fact that it keeps getting played that way uh in various uh to to various audiences that's that's a political rhetoric as opposed to an analytic rhetoric
0: indeed um I will say though, I, I've recently uh, googled uh, climate change as a religion and of course the first links that come up are more this sort of anti-environmental conservative um, approach <laughs> rather than sort of a religious studies approach or another approach. Yes. So yes, yes. Uh, that is because
1: it- the right-wing uh, political infrastructure in the United States is much more media savvy than say the Academy.
0: One hundred percent. And perhaps that explains a lot of the reason we are talking today. Um, so uh, you were currently correct. I, I, I believe I'm correct in saying this. I, I know that uh, presidencies pass on and Lisa Sedaris will soon be, but uh, you are currently the president of the International Society for the Study of Religion, Nature and Culture, correct? Yes. Yes, I thought so. Okay.
1: so Dr. Sedaris will become president, I think, in the spring of this coming year.
0: Okay, wonderful. Um, So uh, could you just tell us a bit about um, the work of the society and its mission? I I think it's relevant to the work that you've done in this book and I, I think might be of interest to this audience.
1: Sure. The International Society for the Study of Religion, Nation, Culture uh, was founded in 2005 by a group of scholars um, headed by Braun Taylor, but uh, many others. The idea is that it is an interdisciplinary uh, group dedicated to the advancement of all uh, academic research in this area. Uh, We do a lot of work, uh, both uh, at the board level uh, and in terms of planning conferences. Uh, that are focused on bringing folks from new uh, disciplinary orientations into the conversation and on helping support early career researchers uh, who work on topics where uh, nature and culture uh, and religion are connected in whatever ways might make sense. So uh, we welcome in particular uh, graduate students, folks in disciplines like geography or anthropology or environmental philosophy, study of religion, uh, many different fields uh, that are engaged in the, those kinds of questions. And are uh, we have social media feeds. We have opportunities uh, for people who are members to interact in uh, private collaboration and conversation online. But uh, the two focal Uh, emphases of our work are the publication of a journal, uh, the Journal for the Study of Religion, Nature, and Culture, which is a quarterly journal published by Equinox uh, uh, and is increasingly uh, a highly cited, impactful journal. Uh, And then uh, uh, conferences, which are held roughly every 18 months. Um, The next conference will be held at Arizona State University in early February of 2023. uh, And the title, uh, the thematic title of that conference is After Earth, religion, and technology on a changing planet. And so we're thinking in the call for papers, which you can see on our website, issrnc.org. Uh, you, you can kind of get down into the details, see that we're asking questions about Afrofuturism, about the role of geoengineering in and uh, theological responses to geoengineering, uh, questions about... Uh, space colonization and space travel, um, sort of messianic depictions of environmental uh, leaders, uh, questions of um, how to think about solar technology and lithium extraction and fossil fuels, uh, and, and how those kinds of questions are being, uh, addressed from, uh, within and across, uh, spiritual and religious traditions. So lots of interesting things in that CFP. And we invite anybody interested broadly in the study of religion, nature, and culture to attend and present at the conferences. Um, and yeah, that's, that's what we're up to. All
0: right. Thank you. Um, So this concludes another episode of the New Books Network. Um, My guest has been Evan Barry. Uh, So thank you for joining me today, Evan.
1: Thank you for having me, Brady. I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: All right. And thank you, everyone, for listening.